Good afternoon and welcome to this week's edition of Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcasting live on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's most fabulous radio station. I'm James Butler and I'm joined in the studio by two other senior editors forming the great Navara Audio Triumvirate. Ash Sarkar and Aaron Bastani. What's up? <laughs> hey. It is a homebrew special today, and we're going to use this moment as resonance professor at Studio Break for August to look both back and forward uh, and take stock of this year and figure out what's been going on and what we have to look forward to. And before we jump into that, I just think this is a great moment to say a word of thanks to all the staff and volunteers here at Resonance who make uh, everything work so smoothly and so perfectly. Um, they're what bring us to you sounding crystal clear elegant uh, and sexy. Uh, <laughs> Speak um, for yourself. <laughs> and just to say, we'll still be producing content. We just won't be live in the studio. Um, so don't worry about that. We, we will be here to guide you through your summer break as well. So we have spent the year grappling with rapid and I think quite unexpected political shifts. Uh, I think we've done reasonably well. And so I want to jump in and say, you know, what have you learned? What have you had to unlearn and what have you been getting wrong i think i've been the wrongest out of all of us (laughs) which is really saying something so i feel i've been welcomed back when maybe i i shouldn't have been i should have been left out in the cold a while longer because i got corbyn totally wrong i was so disheartened back in april um when the snap election was called i was convinced that the turnout was going to be very low especially amongst young people i was convinced that corbyn was going to get hammered and i also thought that he wouldn't be able to substantively reach out to um well the demographic that i'm a part of right like young not posh people of colour, mm-hmm. um, was wrong about all those things. Um, I do, however, think that that being wrong has a value um, because I think that the moment that we're at now where you know the slog to get him into number 10 is potentially a lot longer than we thought it mm-hmm. might be, um, particularly you know with the result coming out in June, um, is that we need to kind of keep up that kind of constructive, affectionate, but you know, really incisive criticism. Um, I think not collapsing all radical activity into the Labour Party is actually paramount. And I think it's, you know, something that can go alongside um, with those kind of democratisation efforts to kind of open it up a bit and make it part of a flourishing, not just Labour movement, but, you know, liberation movement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I've got on my notes, I was right about a great deal. (laughs) Um, which is I mean you know I I got things wrong in the past so you know swings and roundabouts isn't it Um, in terms of what I've learned I saw a video of Paul Mason from the evening or two nights before the general election result and he said my head tells me it's a Tory majority of 20 my gut says it's a hung parliament I'm gonna go with my gut hung parliament and I think actually in in moments of crisis and an old order not being swept away necessarily, but certainly uh, ebbing away, I think that instinct, going with your gut, can be quite productive sometimes. Um, And you're probably going to be wrong regardless, so go with your instincts, go with the macro trends. I thought the Hong Parliament was very likely just because of the sub-polling on UKIP voters, just because of the sub-polling on what young people were saying about them turning out. And if they were both right, a hung parliament was inevitable. 
the question was, would they both transpire? So, yeah, I think that's a really, really important lesson to learn. Uh, clever people can overthink things. Yeah. Um, you sound like my ex. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thinking actually in particular of Nick Timothy. Uh-huh. Uh, and the Tory manifesto because he's that clever. But. Well, he thought okay, but you know they thought they had this big narrative and we'll do this and this and you know what actually the Jeremy Corbyn project, the Labour manifesto's intelligence politically was that it resonated with people in a very simple, comprehensible way. You know, uh, car parking charges with NHS. It wasn't complicated. And that's up. We just did a. I just tweeted the the Democrats uh, slogan for the 2018 um, midterms. Have you seen this? It's like better skills, better pay, better jobs or something. And, you know, working class people aren't going to vote for you on a slogan that says better skills. Because inherently that's saying that your pay is falling, your standards of living are declining because of an absence of skills rather than an economic system which isn't working for you. So, yeah. People overthink things sometimes, and also centrists are really stupid. That's my <laughs> that's my final lesson, I think. Well, I mean, I think I think these are going to be themes that we're going to going to talk a lot about today, particularly that question about the relation of the extra parliamentary to the parliamentary, um, and and the way in which you know uh, things have reconfigured for us over the past year. Yeah, I mean, I think like the both of you. I mean, I think it, it, I. I think I've been wrong in places and interestingly wrong and productively wrong and usefully wrong for myself. I mean, for me, the, the major takeaway this year is, you know, I mean, I like to look at the big kind of structural things, uh, you know, floating way up above the clouds, um, like some sort of transcendent uh, plane. <laughs> the woke drone. I, for, for, for me, <laughs> woke drone. <laughs> Um, the major takeaway for me this year, though, has been been that kind of deepening sense that actually the the political era that that was defined, you know, the broadly broadly defined by kind of the Thatcherite and post Thatcherite era, really is passing away, and that entails, I think, some of what you've both been saying that there is a political crisis in which the old order finds that its its uh, nostrums no longer kind of either apply or adequately explain the contemporary world, even if they 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 kind of passed muster back then. Um, but it, it's also one in which many things are in flux, including politics, uh, the conventional rules of politics. And, and I mean, we saw this last year. Um, so the, the conventional rule with referendums, for instance, is that the, the, the don't knows break kind of two to one in favour of the status quo. That didn't happen uh, uh, then. But it's, you know, I mean, you think, why does, is this so? The answers are obvious, and yet they're still not talked about. It is the eventual consequence of the financial crisis. It is the end of legitimacy by results. So, you know, ultimately, you know, when people spend years and years and years with their lives getting noticeably worse, then the, the claim, the technocratic claim that, that you know, we're governing um, because we know how to make it work, uh, that it no longer has any purchase or has much purchase. Um, and that's the basis of popular political consent. And then we have the profound uh, technological change, which is beginning to shake through as well. And it's shaping the way in which we talk and think about politics. We uh, interviewed Will Davis a couple of weeks ago. And great show, by the way. <laughs> Good. Yeah, yeah, no, I thought he was a great guest. Um, I, you know, we spoke extensively about the way in which that impacts the way in which people approach politics. 
so the old rules and tools don't work. Um, you know, and the te- you know, and and the heuristics we use look wrong as well. You know, typical assignations of where demographic blocks are likely to go; those are shifting. Um, it's not to say all the old wisdom is untrue, but we should be more cautious in applying it. Even certainly more cautious in, in treating it like you know handcuffs or manacles, right? So you know, one of the reasons that I was skeptical going into this general election is I just looked at the numbers and I thought, well, you know, knowing what we know about how you know, blocks vote and, and how things turn out. So, so the point is that in moments like these, things are um, uh, more malleable and more rapidly shifting than we sometimes expect. So the question then is, is whether this actually amounts to a kind of epistemic crisis for experts. And I, I don't think so, but I think probably some of the anger, some of the confusion that comes from, you know, the post-facto rationalizations that have come from these uh, stupid centrists, as you might say, Aaron, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and the sort of various commentators are rooted in the fading of that, contempt, that I mean, conventional wisdom. I think this thing about, like, you know, have we reached, you know, the end of the age of experts? I think it's just a sense of, you know, well, the emperor was always naked, guys, um, you know, that you've got someone like Michael Gove announcing the end of experts and he was perceived within the Conservative Party as being of that kind of intellectual class whereas the rest of us were like he's an <laughs> amphibious um, you know he's got nothing to offer like yeah. you know um, and a very impoverished intellect indeed I don't think it's anything new for us to mistrust our political or media or media commentating class right um, think about from 2003 with the Iraq war onwards we've always been in this position of um, immense dissatisfaction and immense mistrust so I think this idea of there's a clean break with expert with expertise just doesn't really um, speak to the kind of continuity of you know the the last decade and a half, really. What I will say is that I think that what has been shown is that really our commentating class is ill-equipped to deal with data, ill-equipped to deal with polls. When they read margin of error, they tend to read it on the side of the status quo, which, to be fair, I was doing as well. And I think that what is needed isn't a kind of complete, you know, let's throw away polling, this isn't valuable data, is actually saying, well, let's go back to basics. What does within the margin of error mean? What does that tell us about political possibility? Yeah, there's a great tweet from uh, Dominic Cummings, who uh, was obviously... Uh, Brexit mastermind. Yeah, the Marlon Brando of Brexit. <laughs> and uh, Fascinating man. Yeah, man. he is, very, actually. Very, very, very weird. Yeah, very, very he weird. He worked for Gove. Yes, he worked for Gove. He also hates the civil service. Yeah. He hates... Yeah, yeah, his, his Twitter handle is at Odyssean Project, which is uh, rather, yeah, rather strange. But he... Uh, this is a great tweet to David Allen Green. Interesting how your better educated MP hack-type followers have little grasp of epistemological uncertainty vis complex decisions. And I think those two words, epistemological uncertainty, kind of capture what we're trying to talk about. And the failure at present for current, generally, current methodological tools of data collection and analysis of public sentiment that don't quite capture what we try and do. But what's in and above that, what's really strange is, uh, like you say, Ash, 
experts, perceived experts, alleged experts, inability to actually deal with the data, even though I think the stuff we use is flawed, to not even use that properly. So you have people like um, Deborah Mattinson, who specializes in focus groups, and you have data with 2,000 respondents where you've got baseline data for 20 surveys back, uh, very mixed, you know, phone data collection. So it's robust. It's not necessarily correct, but it's robust. And then she'll say, well, I did a focus group with six people and it said something different. And then a newspaper, The Guardian, they've done this. We'll report that and say, well, this bit of polling said this, but this bit of research said this. And you said, well, actually, they're not equally valid. And yeah, there they're, they're really, really, really are a lot of hucksters in the media. A lot, a lot. Yeah, but I mean, I think the consequences of this has taken some very sharp people, you know, longer than one might expect to see that there is actually something going on here. Um, and, and, and that brings me on to, to the other thing that... that I kind of knew but have realised a lot more over the course of the past few months is just how sharply policed the boundaries of acceptable um, mm. political projects are in the UK. And it's OK to be left wing if you're fringe and you're not successful and you're, you, you don't have any kind of meaningful uh, ability to kind of shift um, the political story in the UK. And I, it, it's actually, you know, the, the acceptable zone of politics here is, is actually much narrower than in quite a lot of the rest of Western Europe. And I think partly that's because Britain's two-party system uh, allows kind of quite significant advantages to, to the ideological project that captures you know, whichever of those two main parties. And this is particularly so now that we're seeing that, that stronger repolarization of British politics. Um, but, you know, the, the idea that people had that, well, the, you know, this project can't be successful because it never has been thus far until today. And, you know, it's just a reminder of that, that thing that actually, well, of course, you know, we, we always win in the face of adversity. That's the only way left-wing projects ever do win. So, yes, I mean, like you, I think that tells me I should trust my own analyses more, which tend to be that little bit closer, you know, uh, to the movements that are undertaking this stuff and remain a bit sceptical of the, you know, the pronouncements of kind of academics, political scientists, gossip stenographers and so on. But what struck me actually, listening back to some of the stuff I was saying at the beginning of the year, what I've been most wrong about is that Brexit hasn't been as significant an issue in terms of national political movement than uh, as I expected. And I don't think that's necessarily an entirely good thing because, you know, I, it's quite a significant thing. It's going to have major effects. And it, but it does surprise me. Uh, and again, you know, I think why is this so? Well, it's partly because Obviously, for both political parties, it creates actually quite a significant political headache. There are, in both major political parties, significant factions on different sides of this debate, uh, of how it should be shaped, of how it should go, uh, and, and neither party leadership really wants to engage it in public. But it's partly also not been so significant in the national political conversation because of the salience of living standards and the question of the lost decade. Now, the caveat here is that, that that thing, you know, the question of living standards can become a Brexit issue and probably will. Um, so the territory on which Brexit is negotiated matters. But, but, but my expectation that that conversation would polarise around Brexit just hasn't been, uh, uh, you know, as significant as I thought it would be. I mean, also, I think that Brexit as an issue became a cipher, as we probably all agree, last year for immigration. And the fact that we've now left the EU, we're leaving the EU, meant that immigration wasn't a huge variable um, in this general election. I mean, it was, but again, like I say, through that cipher of Brexit, and because the Tories were saying, we're going to do this, it 
kind of kept a lid on it. Now, that's not to say that the immigration debate, quote-unquote, is done and dusted. Far from it, actually the complete opposite. Uh, but it will return with a vengeance, especially on the right, if Brexit unfolds in certain ways. If we stay in the single market, for instance, uh, or if it's a hard Brexit and all of a sudden the economy tanks, you will increasingly see economistic arguments for immigration. And what I would like to say is this, uh, is that I think we have to obviously be pro-migration. We have to have permeable borders. I've always said that, always will say that. But the left also has to recognise that we have about 18 months to shape the debate here because there are literally no, there's no people who can even negotiate external trade policy. Nobody knows how to do this stuff. So if we're going to formulate an independent migration policy, trade policy, it's literally now or never. I mean, you don't get these opportunities very often. And, you know, we need to talk about things like maybe uh, let's have a green card policy. Okay. We shouldn't have immigration that's contingent on economic metrics or where you are from. It could be a lottery. So that's pretty fair. And it could be many people, and we could quadruple, quintuple uh, the number of asylum applications we accept. We could do all kinds of really interesting things. But I'm not seeing that debate at the moment on the left because we've bought into this thing of single market, not single market. And uh, uh, it's bigger than that. I mean, and it will return in the next general election. I mean, I think that's because that what's, for me, really striking about um, this kind of Corbyn moment for the left is that um, our horizons have really contracted, right? That leftist tradition of internationalism is largely absent, right? So what we have instead is a kind of tussle between a socialism within UK borders, right? But, and I think it's striking that so much of what we talk about it is very much contained within the boundaries of, you know, a UK-centred political imaginary, or a Blairite capitalist cosmopolitanism. And I think that's why this discussion about immigration has never quite moved into what I think is necessary, truly radical territory. It's interesting that you were saying like immigration is, uh, you know, falling off the agenda. There was that YouGov polling. I think the sample was only 645. But saying that it, immigration was a top three issue for 45 percent, uh, sorry, 47 percent of conservative voters and 28 percent of Labour voters in 2015, just 9 percent of conservative voters and 3 percent of Labour voters in the election that's just phenomenal, gone. isn't it? And wow. that's frankly crazy town banana pants. Mm. However, I would add a caveat to that, and that's perhaps that is indicative of a sense of having won. No mm. longer has to be an issue because that kind of um, you know line in the sand with the Brexit vote has been drawn. So you know, for now, attention is focused elsewhere. I am inclined to agree with you. I think it's going to come back. My response would be: Well, let's not just. Um, construct a kind of um, leftist uh, pro-immigration narrative around policy, though I do think that's really important. Let's think about it in terms of, well, how do we build a social movement and a social majority? And I think that the main thing that has to be done is that these freedom of movement 48% uh, remainers have to move past defending the EU as it is and wanting to return to a kind of, you know, pre-June 2016 and have to link up with the kind of, um, well, essentially anti-racist, anti-borders movements which have been dominated by people of colour, particularly South Asian and West African people. They have to link up with the anti-charter flights movement and look at how people have been working so far mm. because really they have not been showing up for years and now's the time to start if you want to be successful. Yeah, I mean, for me, the, the, one of the problems about this is that uh, we end up in a situation where 
Um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I want to think about, you know, the the the, the double uh, movement here and, and say, okay, so one. We, you know, one of the, the 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 things that is going to happen is that, and we can talk about this a bit more uh, towards the end of the show, is that Corbyn's going to end up in number ten, probably. That's, I think, probably quite likely. Um, that means that there will have to be a Labour Party immigration policy. That immigration policy simply will not be open all the borders. Mm. So then we have to think about you know how far we can push them to saying, OK, so one of the, the, the most important things you can do immediately is completely change the, the detention regime. That's that's an essential policy demand, and it can be won quite easily. Yeah. It's, you know, Britain is the most punitive um, by far um, of of European countries. You know, in in what and how it behaves to to, to migrants. Um, the 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 detention. You know, the, the, these things are, are, are obvious wrongs that can be very easily argued about. Uh, the, the more difficult thing, I think, is is. Um, it, accepting that there is within the people making up the Labour Party at the moment, people driving policy, a, a, a real divide. Um, and one of them is to say that um, a faction that believes that essentially the, the intuitions about uh, migration among a certain segment of the, the Labour Party base are basically right. Um, so this is kind of... A, Almost the view that Corbyn expressed the other day—that um, basically, you know, that there is a real problem here, and we, you know, and, and we should accept and listen to that part of the base. And then there's the, another part of the party that says, you know, okay, well, well, actually, we believe in in you know free movement. We believe in you know uh, and free movement of people, right? Not the the EU mm. uh, free movement of labour. We believe in free movement of people, um, but. Uh, we we kind of believe that actually also to to build that in this country either you have to pander to to this and then rebuild popular consent from from a kind of crash point um, uh, and they're willing to kind of prevaricate or kind of put up with some some of this stuff to get to that point and I think that is a tension that's now going to to really come to the fore and I I don't necessarily have uh, an easy solution to it. Can I just respond to that you were saying about Corbyn's comments on the Mars show? Uh, obviously. Uh, I, I wouldn't personally say them. I thought the fact that he explicitly said, I think, Polish workers, I thought that's just totally unnecessary. But when he talks about the whole-scale importation of labour, and people said, well, that's dehumanising them. Well, th that's what labour is. It's a commodity. It's not human. And that's how he was referring to it. He was talking about agencies. Again, I don't think, I wouldn't say the same thing, but I thought that that was a, a willful misreading of what he was saying. And you can agree or disagree with the position. But I it's, think that... Hold on, yeah. You can agree or disagree with the position, that was 100% the kind of thing he was saying on the campaign trail several months ago. Yeah, it I was. don't know. I mean, I think, I think again, like, um, my, I don't want to argue about that because, you know, I, I would have to prepare an argument on that. But I think what we can so say... Do you think it was a new no, I don't, I don't think. It, no, I don't think it's a new term. I don't think it was. But I think it is a continuation of a kind of uh, deliberate ambiguity and deliberate kind of equivocation over this stuff that ultimately will need to will become an issue when uh, you know when when Corbyn or the Corbyn project is near or achieving power. And one of the things I think that is not very useful here is basically there is a, a slippage between issues like say the Laval or Viking Line ruling, so the posted workers directives, so stuff here that allows. Uh, 
uh, foreign workers to be imported as a mo- as a way of undercutting mm. um, or, or demand. Uh, but it does, actually doesn't go on that much in Britain. It mm. goes on a bit, and yeah. it's a real it's a very small part of the labour market. Um, and and but but the the, the thing is, is that that gets pointed to, and the more difficult conversation, the more difficult conversation, which is to say, there is there is an impact in in some uh, unskilled work. Uh, some manual labour. There is an impact to, of of labour importation, um, but the problem there isn't necessarily one that's going to be solved just by an immigration policy. And the immigration policy is not just about that. It is also about a whole bunch of other and more unpleasant cultural problems mm. that that sometimes get occluded or given a pass just because we can say that there are you know economic uh, roots to this stuff. I mean, for me, about that interview. The key question is, was Corbyn playing on xeno-racist tropes in terms of where we think about class interests and the interests of migration as being opposed? Yes, obviously he was. And to me, that's not a surprise because that is completely coterminous within the history of the Labour Party itself. So I'm not going to sit here acting shocked and be like, but he likes more refugees. Like, for me, I'm not surprised. That's also why I'm not a member of the Labour Party. He's also trying to be the Prime Minister. I mean, I'm just... I don't feel that reducing this to Corbyn's individual stance is Mm. useful. No, I agree, For me, what is useful is, well, we've got, as you said, we've got 18 months. That's 18 months to change people's minds about this in uh, concrete ways. So how do we turn what has so far been a very detailed and intellectually robust conversation, but perhaps a bit opaque at times, into accessible demands that people can get behind? Mm. Because that has been one of the main successes of the Corbyn campaign, right? Whoever came up with the phrase dementia tax, I will snog you <laughs> personally <laughs> with tongue, with tongue, because that I'll was genius. I'll give you genius. his number after the show. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, what have I done? Yeah. Um, um, but I, I feel yeah. that there are ways to do that with the issue of borders and migration. So mm. not just immigration detention, which I think is winnable. But um, a friend of mine uh, at Joel Blyman was on the Football Beyond Borders show. Mm. Absolute genius, total sweetie, was like, Mm. well, look, if we turned around and said the expectation that landlords, doctors, teachers, um, that they should be part of, uh, you know, checking people's immigration status, that's a winnable demand. If we say this is a waste of time, it's a waste of public Mm. money, and it's a way of, you know, pushing back against, you know, that uh, Theresa May hostile climate um, set of policy proposals. Similarly, the whole racist van thing, right? Two words, and that was a winnable mm. moment. I think what's important is that rather than looking at these as isolated flashpoints, mm. we join them up. There is an anti-borders movement mostly concentrated around London, which has done that, and now it's the time for the, you know, the Labour left at large to fall in line. Mm. I mean, want to push on a bit. Oh, can I say one yeah. quick thing about demands? I mean, mm. I, so I think what you need to do with these things is you need to pick the issue, you need to polarise, and then you go very hard. Um, and obviously, um, detention centres like Yarlswood are one. If it was up to me, and it's not up to me, and that's probably a good thing because these guys are doing a fantastic job at the moment in terms of winning, although they didn't win the, the election. <laughs> it's surprising <laughs> I would say, yeah, I was massive, but also I would love to see the end of tier one visas because how is it fair that somebody can get citizenship if they have a million pounds in the bank Mm. and somebody who works for two pounds an hour ends up in a prison? It's not. So I'd get rid of both of them at the same time. And I think it's that kind of logic which says we want an immigration policy for the many, not the few, non-Britons, which I think, you know, I can see a possibility there for something really, really, really good, but it's about the left engaging with issues of sovereignty and the fact that, yes, this is management of a state in a world determined by 
state relations. We'll talk about that later on, I guess. Yeah, I mean, so, I, yeah, no, I want to move on a bit and say, you know, like, so some of the other things, I, you know, I, that it's interesting listening back is that, the, you know, the, the two kind of vices I have intellectually is one kind of over, over-ascribing of stasis to political systems, um, but... Uh, also, kind of, or, or it's less my intellectual vice than than, than other people's is is to expect that uh, everything is also at the same time quite fragile. Uh, and it, one of the things I think is really useful to remember is that uh, power is a really really effective glue. It keeps things together. You know, it, there was a lot of of conversation at the beginning of this year that Trump wasn't going to last, or. Uh, or after the election that Theresa May wasn't going to last. And the thing we must always, always remember is that power really keeps things together. Now, it's not an infinite adhesive, um, but it's a really, really significant one. Uh, and, and we can sometimes be kind of too hopped up on the expectation. I, I think the other thing... Iraq, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many people left the cabinet? Two? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think the other thing that I've realised in the course of this year is not just a kind of renewed appreciation of the virtues of mediation, which I'm more and more inclined to think of as a kind of incontrovertible and inescapable political fact, um, you know, basically the ground basis for the world in which we have to act politically. But but related to that, the, the, the realisation that the UK left has many, many things it doesn't know the first thing about. And, it, you know, quite shocking to me has been the realisation that not many people really understand the details of either the legislative process mm. or the bases of the, the, the constitution. Matters I think they're going to become ever more important over the course of the next year, two years, which I'm probably going to have to write at length on. Uh, I'm also thinking about various things about the kind of political cultures that give rise to that insularity and insulation and the kind of micro-politics that go on them, but that's a question for another place. So I want to move on and ask what we're not looking at. Um, so we get sometimes too close to the nitty-gritty of political life. And we can neglect longer term shifts and whether that's technological, political, economic, cultural or things that fly under the radar, right? Because they happen a long way away or in areas where there's not much media penetration. So what are we missing, Aaron? I've got two nice ones. I'll be quick. First is, I think, a changing relationship to the society of spectacle. I won't start quoting the board, but I think um, it's inflected to an extent by changing technology as well as economics. Oh, God, it's 2010 again and we're at the UCL occupation. <laughs> but it's true, right? Um, well, I think it's true. Um, <laughs> I, you know, it's not, it's a, is that a falsifiable statement? Probably not. Um, so I think that's interesting. I mean, I think emblematic of that is the appointment of uh, Antonio Scaramucci. <laughs> Il Mucci. Um, <laughs> And he, uh, Tony Scaramucci... Uh, Who is the new Trump communications director. Yeah, director. Yeah. Not spokesperson, <laughs> director. And he is just, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Great piece in The New Yorker where he's just... I think he, he obviously thinks he's talking off the record, but he hasn't said the words off the record. So it all goes into an article um, where he says the most obscene but funny things. Um, Ofcom bingo. Ofcom bingo. Yeah. And then he does a, a CNN interview, you know, the, the next day, which is equally funny. But the point is... 20 years ago, and actually this is still the mindset of, you know, Labour moderates, is that public discord, uh, evident chaos, is a negative thing. They think it's a bad thing. Put a lid on it, you know, control it. You know, the kind of thick of it politics. Uh, I think Trump understands that contemporary politics is just as much about entertainment as it is information. Um, and I think people are entertained by Scaramucci, particularly the Trump base. Uh, and that probably overrides the importance of having a 
particularly coherent message. Um, so I think there's a changing relationship to the political spectacle. We can talk about that maybe later or subsequent shows. Um, and I think I've put here cryptography is pretty rad. Um, too complex <laughs> to make catchy so everyone talks about Bitcoin, which is stupid. Um, but it will make possible the automated enforcement of contract. Uh, in a couple of decades, which is really, really just amazing uh, in terms of a super capitalism. Uh, and finally, we live in an era of collapsing liberalism. Uh, and I think sometimes we neglect on what is a growing left to think about how that impacts our own politics. Uh, I think the debate around the single market in particular is a really good example of that. I think many people who I thought over the last six, seven years uh, who I've met uh, in protest, in conferences, in academia, um, we have to understand that 30, 40 years ago, we would have had very different politics. So uh, the historical specificity of a liberalism, which is in decline intellectually, but also which finds itself in an economic moment where it can no longer reproduce itself as a set of material interests for a growing middle class, is really interesting. And I do think to an extent it does shape certain aspects of a new left movement, not just in Britain, but actually particularly in the United States. I think for me, uh, what we're missing out on, for me, it comes back down to this question of the international. What the left is not that great at is critical geopolitics. We're really bad at understanding the interplay between countries or trading blocks, right? So I think that's the first thing that we need to get back at looking at, particularly when the kind of orthodox global order is reshaping itself, mm. right? Well, like the spectacle of American decline, mm. I think, um, is astonishing. And we've not even... Uh, begun to think about some of those repercussions. I think um, an offshoot of that has been uh, thinking about uh, the well, um, absolutely horrific conditions in Libya, particularly for migrants coming from um, both East and West Africa, people making that very dangerous overland route through Libya and then um, across the Mediterranean. We've not thought about what Libyan you know, I'm doing uh, air quotation marks, you can't see it because it's the radio. Um, <laughs> Stabilisation is going to look like, I mm. think, um, brutal, repressive, even more so uh, than conditions already are. Um, and I think this leads me to a question, which is, in an era where, you know, um, humanitarian intervention, humanitarian military intervention has been roundly uh, discredited from 2003 onwards is what does a model of not military intervention but any sort of uh, intervention or humanitarian um, there's not a better word than intervention Jesus um, but you know what does solidarity what does ameliorating some of those most mm. horrific conditions look like um, we've not even begun to ask ourselves those questions of what does it look in the absence um, of Western military intervention. The second thing, and this is the thing we were talking about earlier, um, I was thinking about some of the earlier shows that I did with you guys, and it, I kept coming back down to this question of identity politics, which at that time I thought was a useful, if imperfect, category for talking about various kinds of politicised experiences. I think where I am now, um, at this particular juncture, I think that identity politics in lots of ways is holding us back because we're treating matters of power as primarily matters of identity. I don't think race is the technology of identity. I think it's the technology mm. of governance. And I think that it's even more successfully been adopted by the right, in particular, the alt-right. Um, there's a woman whose name I shall not utter because I fear <laughs> it will give her power, who um, is part of this awful... Uh, alt-right project to you know get together I think a boat or 
perhaps some boats to essentially assist in drowning migrants in the Mediterranean. And the name of that project is Generation Identity. You think about lots of the stuff around culture. You think about the stuff about Europa, European identity. For me, that's classic identity politics. Um, and I think that we hold ourselves back as primarily people of colour, young people of colour living in the diaspora by saying that we can somehow reclaim these categories. I think they've been shaped by that kind of multicultural liberal consensus in the 90s. We've never really been able to shake that off. And I think, again, the, this is a problem of internationalism. What do I, as a Bengali living in London, have in common with a Bangladeshi climate refugee? Right. To what extent are my relative conditions of privilege predicated on their conditions of exploitation? Both our experiences are deeply racialized, but identity is not the bracket that can hold those mm. things together. So for me, one of the things that I would like to see moving forward is moving past um, identity politics and into a politics of identity focused on power. Can I respond to that? Absolutely I mean, not. Look, <laughs> what you were saying, I mean, really, this really resonated with me, especially in the aftermath of Grenfell, because a number of Iranians uh, were lived in Grenfell. Um, there was a story of an Iranian man who was murdered, it seems, essentially, uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as a result of a sustained campaign of harassment, intimidation, abuse. Mm. Iranian man, uh, a refugee, I believe. I think he, you know, document. Obviously, he, not obviously, he was he was a documented uh, migrant here, political refugee. Um, and yeah, my experience is obviously not the same as theirs. It would be an insult for me to say that I, I am a, uh, a similar subject to an Iranian Kurd who's fled the country, crossed mountains, you know, got into a European country illegally. I mean, it's, it's insulting to them. I've had a really great life. The institutions of the British state, for a number of contingent reasons, have been pretty good to me. You know, uh, yeah, I, you know, I mean, I haven't, Not you know, all of them. <laughs> well, that's true. Well, actually, in the end, uh, in the end, yeah. in the end, um, James is, of course, referring to a certain court of law, um, which we can now talk about as a result of, you know, Guido Fawkes being so uh, uh, public about these things. But the point is, yes, I, 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 I really agree. One thing I want to respond to is you're saying about Libya. What does it look like? What we're now seeing is um, the recycling. This is really new. This is since the global financial crisis. And it, it is bound up with the decline of American hegemony and decline of American industry is a recycling of oil profits back into the military industrial complex. Mm. Iraqi military spending is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I've got it here from 2015. It's the 14th highest spender in the world ahead of Israel, Saudi Arabia, third. On some measures, it's fourth. But it's basically the same as, uh, it's basically the same as Russia. Uh, and obviously it's got a much smaller population. It hasn't got the same domestic military base. Russian you know, defence spending is at least helping a domestic industry. So, I mean, that's pretty remarkable. And Libya, I mean, what, so what would happen with Libya? What would stabilisation look like? A permanent war state recycling mm. those profits from oil and gas exports mm. into purchasing US and, Amer uh, and British and French produced uh, military equipment. Yeah, I mean that's the future. I, I, I just to uh, I think I think this conversation is in, uh, an important one. The question of identity, because it, it seems to me that these are these are questions about political subjectivity and what it means to be political and how how one conducts politics. And I think there is there's quite you know there's an important story in the 20th century, which is the the broadening of the con, you know the concept of politics to include things that were avowedly non-political, uh, and that is that's an enormously important transformation. Uh, one that is is one that because we live in the aftermath of it is. is very often 
uh, underrated. At the same time, it, it seems to me that, 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 that this question is one that is sorely needing some theorization or some exploration of the, the, what it means to be a collective political subject and what solidarity means, in the, and which is what you're talking about, right? Which is what it means to be um, markedly different to and yet in solidarity with someone. And that, to me, is essential. Now, there, there are some strains of this politics that say that is simply impossible. Um, and yet, I, it doesn't seem to me that that is the case. And, and part of the way through this, I think, is thinking about collectivity. And, and part of it also, it, it seems to me, is, is you know, is simply, uh, you know, expanding our concept of what it means to, to, to act politically and, and how we undertake that in a way that, that is concerned uh, with the idea that politics is still possible, right? With the idea that, that actually, actually it's not a question of the destruction of the political, but how you build political communities that matters. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and, and I think this is probably a question for a whole show, but I think it's really, really, you know, a, sub, a substantive question. And I mean, the other thing, of course, is, is, is the, the difficulty here is that you say, you know, the, this question of, you know, how, how you act in, sol act in solidarity with, with, um, you know, someone with whom you feel an affinity um, and yet from whom you differ. And that question of affinity, I think, is also important. That question of how, you know, affective relationships undergird politics and the fact that or how you think about the undeniable political fact, which is that one feels sympathy in or kind of solidarity in ways which are uneven and unequal and how you both challenge and build on that fact. So the other thing for me that is a major thing that, that I think sometimes is missing from the conversation is, it's, is the change in the nature of democracy. And it's sometimes overstated, but it, to me it's been one of the themes of the past few years, you know, that there is a popular and overwhelming frustration with the rule of law, with democratic norms. Now, of course, our position shouldn't be that everything was fine already. That, that's, that's the liberal position, right, that, that everything that we've achieved politics. Um, you know, some of these norms are designed to hamper and to baffle. But if you look at the kind of things that Trump or Erdogan or Kaczynski or Orban say about democracy, the way they act, uh, and, you know, it, to me, it's the same thing, you know, sometimes in a farcical way here, but with Boris Johnson and Theresa May talking about saboteurs and judges and the rule of law. Um, this is why I call Boris Johnson a cancer in public life. It's because he destroys the notion of public life. I think we need as the left, a better appreciation of how fragile the democratic achievements of constitutional orders can be. And I think, I think that only makes sense when you can talk about it as a project that isn't yet completed, that is wildly uncompleted, and it's the left more than liberals who are, who, you know, who are better placed to do that. Um, so, so, you know, and the reason the left is better placed to do that is to point out that this kind of double alienation, not just, for, you, know, for, for, you know, from all forms of mediation, not just the political, so that, that you know, hatred of media and the hatred of, you know, you know just, 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 just the sense that, that your world is completely cut off from the things that are supposed to be mediating it and supposed to have some relationship to it, has longer term structural economic bases. And it's the left that can talk about that, not liberals and certainly not the right. So that to me is one of, of, of the major things. But the other is that's really striking. And I, it was on my mind because I've been, I was reading the Tom Hazeldine piece in the recent New Left Review. It's an astonishing piece on Brexit. Um, it's just how unequal, and we know this, right? It's just how unequal, the, the deeply unequal the UK really is. And it's masked in media 
um, often other than the occasional poverty safari. And it's indicative of a lot of problems in the media. But, you know, I mean, the UK and England especially is like Italy in the 1960s. You know, this wildly uh, unequally developed um, uh, country. And so bad are its regional disparities. And you've got to, you've got to remember what that, that, that disparity and that unevenness led to in Italy, which was essentially a breakdown of, mm. of you know, popular, you know, the ability of politics to govern uh, and the <laughs> rise of enormous, enormous social and political conflict, including, you know, armed insurgency. Prominent. Uh, the prime minister kidnapped you know, and assassinated. assassinated yeah, uh, there's a, a you know the you know the OECD says while gaps in GDP per capita across OECD countries have narrowed over the last two decades within their borders, countries are witnessing increasing income gaps among regions, cities, and people, and that is especially true in the UK. It's more lopsided than Italy, um, than Spain. Um, uh, than uh, Germany, <laughs> um, you know, than France. You know, it's you know uh, 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 the European Commission says the economic geography of the UK these days increasingly reflects the patterns typically observed in developing or former transition economies rather than in other advanced economies. Um, so, so you know, it's it's much like several European periphery states. You know, Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, Romania. Uh, Slovakia, the, only the capital city region achieves the output per capita above the EU average. And that's, that's really, really important in thinking about the way in which politics is working in England especially, but across the UK as well. And, and th this was indicative this week when you had this cancellation of these railway electrification plans, while also the kind of Crossrail 2 project being approved. And, you know, it's, and, and it's been going on for a long time. And think about the way in which Blair tried to fix this, which is just to, you know, actually bung some pub public sector jobs, you know, into the north and hope that that took it and that would cope. Well, I mean, that declined massively under the coalition. Anyway, 14% of public sector jobs lost in the northeast as opposed to three in the southeast. So th this, this regional question is, I think, so, so, so important. I'll be really quick about the transport thing. I mean, this feeds into a discussion, again, centrists. They talk about Pareto optimality, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Pareto was a, you know, there was a, was a, a fascist, effectively, uh, before fascism became a thing. Um, and they'll say, well, you know, well, return on ROI, return on investment on taxpayer investment. Well, obviously, the return on investment per pound in London in terms of transport infrastructure or education infrastructure or, you know, whatever, will be higher because you keep on building infrastructure here. So it's a, it's a circular thing. Of course, one pound of investment won't go as far in the northeast in Gateshead because there's nothing there. There's no jobs. There's no infrastructure. There's few skilled people. The people that are highly skilled and ambitious uh, leave, okay, because there's no jobs there. So, yeah. And that's that feeds into this. Kind and it's of it's not just a um, infrastructure thing; it's also a health and social care yeah. thing. Mm. So when you look at um, the most impoverished but also uh, troubled families, so where there's family breakdown or you know children are like you know um, intermittently foster cared, they're often moved not just out of borough in London but out of city. And where do they go? They go to places like Rochdale, Rotherham, Oldham. So towns which have since become notorious for crises in terms of the protection of children, mm. right? And that's because you have also overstretched um, social services there, right? So they've got, you know, ever more families who are being shipped there from London boroughs. Mm. They're not getting the frontline investment that they need or even the administrative support that they need in order to work these cases. And you have vulnerable families, vulnerable people being failed across the board. And the consequences of that are brutal and also potentially fatal. So I think looking at this not simply in terms of employment and capital, but looking at it in terms of what 
what kind of lives are people living? It's really true. Can I quickly respond to that? I mean, yep. I've talked a lot, so, but it's true, right? Because it's easy to paint a picture of London versus the rest, but the point is, this is about a surplus population or the unnecessariat, mm. and the unnecessariat in London will increasingly be dumped in these places. Mm. You know, the relocation of people from the Haygate is that's a great mm. example. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, or, it's or Grenfell. It's, they, they would love yeah. to have taken these people outside of London, but yeah. political pressures might I mean, it's also worth saying that, that, that these dynamics exist in the southeast as well. One of the most mm. deprived areas in the UK is, for instance, Jaywick in Essex. So, so these things uh, exist as dynamic in the southeast as well. Um, I want to move on. As we've got, you know, 13 or so minutes left. Um, and I want to think about the rest of the year, actually. I want to think about we have uh, a few months left and I want to know what you're keeping an eye out for, what you're thinking about is coming down the pipeline for us. Afrobeat. You know what? All my predictions are wrong. (laughs) So I'm 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 just not gonna make Uh any. uh Um uh you know, Aaron says like, you know, follow your gut and I'm like, my gut's telling me I'm peckish. Like really it's it's saying nothing. Um but what I will be looking out for, I think, um, is seeing just how open the kind of you know, Labour Party leadership will be to further left-wing ideas and that can kind of drag the discourse leftwards mm-hmm. and also seeing what can be done about these Labour councils which sit to the right of the leadership at the moment. I'm thinking about Haringey selling off, like, what, two billion of public assets, including mm-hmm. council housing, um, despite the protestations of two yes, Labour MPs, yeah. which to me, again, is absolutely bananas. So those are things that I'll be looking out for. Um, another thing will be while... The most virulent and vitriolic uh, anti-immigration imagery and rhetoric from 2016 that we remember has kind of died away a bit. Um, It's still there and we're seeing it on our streets. We're seeing it in acid attacks on Mm. Muslims in London. We're seeing it in terms of um, hate crimes, women having hijab ripped off them. And so what kind of community responses can we shape? Because ones which are essentially statist are not working. They cannot Mm. work. Yeah, um, the rest of the year, blimey. Um, I mean, I have a whole bunch. <laughs> Do you want to go? You go then. Uh, yeah, okay, sure. Um, well, I mean, to pick up on the migrant point, you know, it's now summer and warming seas mean mm. that the peak migration attempts mm. across um, the sea. This has already had an impact in Italian politics, quite a major one. And Italy is making all sorts of political threats over this, make things very difficult for migrants arriving in the south of Italy. The European media is suffering migrant death fatigue. They just don't care, mm. they're not reporting on it anymore. But it is a crisis of the first order and one in which future generations, if there are any, because climate change continues to pace, um, will look on in, in astonishment at, at the inaction here. And, you know, Italy, Italy's government is, is now threatening to stop foreign ships docking um, entirely uh, as part of this. And actually, actually, Italy is also testing the, 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 the bounds of the EU in other ways, right? So uh, it's testing the bounds on banking rules. So it was all, the you know, banking rules have already been kind of uh, knocked around for them to to bail out um, Monte dei Paschi, which is a big Italian bank that's been near to falling over for a, a couple of years. Um, but they've just bailed out two regional banks in the Veneto, um, uh, uh, the the Vicenza and Veneto Banca, uh, with taxpayer cash. So you've got the, these kind of state kind of taxpayer bailouts of banks, um, which, you know, really isn't kind of the kind of thing they want to be doing, the EU wants, wants to be doing. Um, so the question is what, what that, you know, various 
politicians across the block are looking at thinking you know, what's going on here and maybe this will impel some more change in, in the banking union and, and perhaps in the eurozone although i think that's unlikely um but 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 this tells us that that you know people in the eu are thinking about what what's going to happen when there's a kind of systemic risk uh, again uh you know italian elections are now unlikely this year so uh, mattarella said said this recently so it's but, but so Italy again continues to be something to watch for me. It's a really instructive one. Um, the Movimento Cinque Stelle, the Five Star Movement, uh, dipped a bit in the past, but it's still neck and neck with with Renzi, who's just been re-elected leader of his party. <laughs> so so who knows? You know, they, they have those have to happen by May of next year. Those elections, and we might be looking at quite you know a, a xenophobic. Although the the Northern League is in trouble. Anyway, other things to look out for. Fed rate hike at some point has mm. to happen. We've been saying this for yeah, I know, years. I know. But the, the the Fed is now saying, you know, oh, you know, it's coming. <laughs> but I, I think I wrote a piece two you years did. ago <laughs> saying that. So. Yeah, I mean, the thing that is definitely happening this year is the Chinese Communist Party Congress. Mm. Um, now this is going to be interesting because yeah, I, I'm, I mean, Xi Jinping is going to be. Um, carry, he's going to carry on as general secretary. I, I suspect until so. 2022 is his mandated retirement day. And the question is, if that you know, what, what, you know, if if the if the Congress is appointing she uh, allied uh, uh, functionaries and and, and politicians uh, in in this Congress, then that suggests that probably we're, we're going to see an extension of his term post 2022. That's a major change um, in the way in which Chinese politics has been conducted since Mao. Um, but China has other things to try and navigate. It's got a really, really slowly growing economy now. Uh, so it's growing economy in about 25, 30 years. Mm. Um, and then they have the completely unstable uh, global picture in which they're taking, uh, you know, I mean, the, you know, China is now the, the world's greatest advocate of free trade. Um, you know, they have a very, very unstable world picture and they, they have been historically disinclined to military expansionism that is gradually changing. They're building a base in Eritrea at the moment. Um, so uh, this, I mean, China is going to be one to watch in, in, in that way, and, and and I think we'll do something on China uh, as a show when 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 the Congress rolls around. Um, there's the kind of Saudi and Qatari developments mm. in terms of kind of the movement away from oil into sovereign wealth funds. Those conflicts are going to get bigger and bigger. There are German elections in uh, in the autumn. Uh, and there is a big, big showdown happening right now between Poland and the EU over mm. rule of law, which links into the stuff I was saying earlier. Um, it, the EU is threatening to activate the provisions in Article 7, uh, in which it suspends Poland's voting rights for the subversion um, of the rule of law and the threatened dismissal of Supreme Court justices. So that is that is major. That is major. I'll say three things. Uh, German elections? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Big. And if Merkel wins, then between her and Macron, you're going to see... Uh, the reinvigoration of the Franco-German axis, the present neoliberal trajectory of the European Union further intensify, um, which obviously is something of a rebuttal to people that say, well, we can make, you know, a left-wing Europe. I just find that quite... A left-wing European Union, rather. Uh, that seems at odds with uh, the present trajectory, especially if, if Merkel wins big. Now, she may not win at all. It may be a, a green-red-red coalition, in which case, all of a sudden, we have a different kind of debate about 
Europe, right? So let's see. That's a big event. Two other ones are ones in the US, ones in the UK, and they're both relate to really substantial questions for the left moving forward. Firstly, Steve Bannon's talking about a top rate of tax for for high income earners of 44%. So the question for right-wing populism is, will it have a redistributive agenda? And obviously Bannon wants to increase those taxes to spend money on infrastructure, to provide jobs to white working class Americans. Um, so that's interesting. And if that happens, I think it won't happen. But if it did happen, and if it was a political success, that clearly is a template then for right-wing populism elsewhere. And I think that's particularly relevant for Britain in a post-Brexit climate. And the Tories, after they lose the next general election, which way do they go? Then secondly, I, I think, uh, returning briefly to the issue of freedom of movement, Britain, um, obviously in the debate around the single market and the, how the left relates to that, <clears throat> is now having to uh, re-engage, like I say, with issues of sovereignty, state management in an age of crisis. And what we have to work out is how do you advocate a politics of meaningful international solidarity, in a radical sense, whilst being part of a wider project which is overseeing the management of a capitalist state. Uh, that's not easy. I mean, I've said things, for instance, uh, here today, people will be on Twitter or wherever, they'll be listening to it at home and they'll say, well, this is terrible. We want open borders. But like you say, this is a 150-year-old uh, contradiction of wanting working-class solidarity, internationalism, the eradication of both capitalism and borders, but also understanding that the state, the nation state, is of ontological primacy in the world order. Mm. Uh, and that is not going to change any time in the next two years, sadly. Sorry. Okay, so three big, yeah, three big things. I me. mean, the last, the other thing I wanted to mention, and you know, I, I was going to talk about the British Constitution, but I've done that a lot, so I'm not going to. <laughs> Catalonia is en route to a referendum, a self-impelled uh, referendum in October. They've said they're going to go ahead with it, regardless of what um, the Spanish. Are the state army? Does. Are the army going to get involved? Who or? knows? But it's a really substantial <laughs> and difficult problem. I shouldn't laugh. But, actually. No, I mean it's a difficult problem, Serious. and uh, independence campaigners across Europe. Um, so national independence campaigners, and not least in Scotland, mm. will be looking at what's going on here. It could be very, very, very interesting, or it could be a busted flush. So who knows? Um, but that's something I'm going to be keeping an eye on till October. Your last question. Last question. It's a great one. Yes. Um, what is your summer reading going to be? What is your summer reading and what is your summer my thinking question? My summer reading um, is Black Against Empire, The History and Politics of the Black Panther Party by Joshua Bloom and Waldo E. Martin Jr., um, which has kind of got me thinking about what does a leftist internationalism look like? Because obviously the Black Panthers begin by looking at the war in Vietnam and that's how they develop this language of, um, the, you know, uh, the US police being an occupying force and drawing some really, I think, substantive conclusions about the connections between black and brown struggle. Um, and I think is a kind of riposte to identity politics, which is interesting because lots of Black Panther thinkers have been using, uh, I think, decontextualized quotes and bits of thinking as a way of bolstering, you know, identity politics. Um, so that is my summer reading and I'm going to Palermo next Great week. Great city. So that's where I'll be doing this reading. Great. I was going to. Th I don't actually know any Sicilian. I was going to say. I know some Neapolitans. <laughs> that'd be completely inaccurate. Um, Naples is a long way from Palermo. Um, my summer reading: Shattered Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign <laughs> by Jonathan Allen. I mean, it's meant to be really funny, apparently. So I want to read that, and then Great Again. 
How to Fix Our Crippled America by Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> I want to read those too. I've just finished Adam Greenfield, Greenfield rather, Radical Technologies with Verso. Fabulous book. Uh, but yeah, those two books I've mm. said about the US, particularly interesting. My research question is, what do we do when the IMF come calling? Which yeah, is going to happen question. if Labour really, win a generation. Really important question, hugely important question, the 1976 question in some ways. Um, mine is, uh, I'm going to be doing a systemic reading of Judith Schlar, who is um, probably quite obscure and now dead, Harvard uh, political philosopher, she's liberal, but she asks interesting questions about what it means to proceed from the assumption that injustice is the driving force of politics in a way that justice actually isn't, um, and to think about what it means to, to live in a polity where people are driven not by great political sins, but ordinary vices, so things like cruelty and hypocrisy uh, and that, that kind of stuff. Really, really interesting political questions, and I think there's an interesting left thing to talk about with them. Other things to think about over the holiday, um, Perry Anderson's Brace of New Books, which I've read but want to reread and think about, um, Necht and Kluger on the public sphere, mm. also really classic but interesting books so for me the meaning of political power in the contemporary world so a little question any fiction there. any literature so, no well I'll, you'll have to hit me up on twitter <laughs> uh that this has been navara fm uh send us your summer reading as well hit us up on twitter we will be back over the holiday on an irregular basis so we'll see you at some time soon uh bye-bye have a great summer have a great summer this show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navara Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media. Media for a different politics.